Healthcare moves fast. Today's disruptive capability is tomorrow's business as usual. Market Insights Live is a podcast presented by TripleTree, bringing together insight and perspective on the most pressing topics shaping the future of healthcare. Good morning and welcome to Market Insights Live. My name is Michael Carroll and I'm the Chief Marketing Officer at TripleTree. Today's session is titled, It Takes a Village, Evolving Models of Community-Based Care. We're fortunate to have a great group of panelists who are changing healthcare and how it's delivered in the community-based setting. A reminder that the views and opinions expressed in today's conversation are those of our participants and do not necessarily reflect the opinion or official policy of Triple Tree and its affiliates. To begin today's conversation, I'd like to introduce my colleague, Nate Shivers. Nate, take it away. Thanks, Michael. Good morning, everyone. I'm Nate Shivers. I'm a director with Triple Tree, focused on M&A advisory services across the health plan, consumer, post-acute, and alternative site care landscapes. I want to reiterate what Michael said. Thanks to everyone for being with us this morning for what is sure to be a thoughtful discussion with industry leaders and innovators across the topic of community-based care. Before I turn it over to our panel for today, Today's discussion, I want to spend a few minutes um, introducing the foundational aspects of today's topic and highlighting a few key areas of focus that you will hear woven throughout this morning's discussion in terms of themes, tailwinds, and overall activity driving the innovation that we're going to hear about today. What you'll see outlined here is really at its core, you know, as we think about the macro trends that are driving the community-based care innovation that we've seen in the marketplace and what our panelists are bringing to the community, um, you know, what are those four pillars that you're going to hear really driving the need for change in the way that care is delivered? First and foremost, consumers are demanding more from their healthcare system. They're demanding convenience. They're demanding better access to care. They're demanding the comfort of their own homes, and they're demanding elements of other industries that they are used to as they think about the way that they shop, the way that they engage with other industries, and they want to bring that convenience to healthcare. Uh, If COVID has shown us anything in this pandemic that we've gone through, it's that we have a healthcare system and a consumer who are willing, able, and ready to engage with the healthcare system in a new way. And the rise of technology and other remote models of care have continued to grow throughout this pandemic, and we believe will be at the forefront of how care continues to evolve based on consumer demand. At the same time, the demographic trends that we're seeing in the marketplace are driving a need for innovation. By 2060, the population of seniors 65 plus will double and will require increased amounts of in-home care and uh, work that they will need in order to continue to age and live a healthy lifestyle. And at the same time, the number of chronic conditions that we're seeing in the marketplace is continuing to rise. These demographic shifts require a different level of care and they require uh, a insight and a touch from the healthcare system that does not exist simply within the four walls of the hospital. Now, while it's obviously a need for the consumers, Uh, It's also incredibly cost-effective for our entire system to deliver care in innovative ways within the home and in the community. The average cost of providing the same level of acuity care in the home is over 32% cheaper than it is in an acute setting or a more traditional hospital setting. And because of that, uh, constituents across the healthcare landscape from health plans, providers, and others are all driving to figure out what levels of care they can better provide within the confines of the community and the home. And lastly, but perhaps most importantly, the system and the healthcare marketplace have continued to understand and develop uh, an acute focus on the fact that it is much more than the clinical elements of how care is delivered that impact the overall outcomes of their patients. In fact, studies suggest that over 80 to 90% of a person's overall health outcomes are driven by non-clinical factors and what we'll refer to broadly throughout the discussion today as a social determinants of health. What type of transportation needs does somebody have? What type of nutrition is a patient getting? Do they have access to their medications or to the care that they need? Uh, All of those elements play into the overall outcomes that a patient is going to see and the ability to weave care into the community and into the home that can address both these social determinants as well as clinical aspects of care 
is absolutely critical to delivering an appropriate outcome. Just to spend a, a minute on this page, what, what we've outlined here is just highlighting the, the broad focus of all of the things that can be accomplished within the community as you think about care delivery. Obviously, the, the ability to deliver actual hands-on care is critical, but in addition to the care that you can deliver, there's also incredible insights that can be gained from, from being within the community and within a member's home. For example, identifying opportunities to flag risks and gaps within a patient's care that may not show up in a clinical chart, but could be apparent things that could easily drive admissions to the hospital, emergent uh, care, or other needs that could be avoided if there were some level of intervention. The ability to identify those gaps and push that information into the appropriate settings helps the healthcare system better coordinate care, better stratify risk, and ultimately better provide high quality care to a patient population with significant need. That combination of the ability to gain insights as well as deliver a higher quality, lower cost care, all create a compelling reason why the home and the community are such a critical element to the way that our healthcare system delivers care. So without further ado, I would like to introduce my colleague, Dave Brownlee, who will be moderating our panel this morning. As a reminder, I will be uh, revisiting the discussion here throughout the morning and monitoring questions from our audience. So if you have a question that you would like to raise for our panel, please feel free to use your control panel on the right and submit that. Dave, I'll turn it over to you. Thanks, Nate, and welcome to our panel discussion on community-based care. We're uh, joined here today by three industry leaders and uh, pillars of their own communities who are excited to have uh, with us here today. I'll, uh, I'll start with a quick round of introductions. First, we have Jason Rose, the CEO of Adhere Health, a uh, leading healthcare technology company uh, focused on medication adherence. Um, Jason has had a, a long career in healthcare technology, most recently uh, prior to Adhere, serving as a, a senior executive at Anovalon. Since coming to the company in, in 2018, Adhere has shifted its focus toward a, a SaaS technology offering that helps its clients target and engage consumers who are not uh, adherent to their medications. So Jason, thanks for, uh, for joining us here today. Good morning. Next up, we've got uh, Nathan Goldstein, who serves as the Chief Strategy Officer of Signify Health. Nathan has a long history in, in government-sponsored programs and, and publicly financed healthcare. He's, he's worn many hats at Signify and its predecessor companies, uh, spanning sales, strategy, corporate development, and, and associated functions. For those who are not familiar with Signify Health, the uh, company manages one of the, the largest networks of mobile clinicians to help uh, really transform how healthcare is paid for and delivered in, in the home uh, and in the community. And finally, we have uh, Dr. Mark Brather, who is the CEO of Dispatch Health, a company whose mission is to create the most advanced and, and highest acuity in-home care model in the industry. Uh, Mark is our esteemed physician on the panel with uh, with over 20 years of experience as a board-certified emergency medicine specialist. He's also been involved in uh, multiple medical industry startups, uh, including iTriage, which was sold to Aetna, uh, before founding Dispatch Health back in, in 2013. So again, thanks everyone for joining us here today. So Nathan, why don't we start with you on uh, an important topic that was previewed a bit in the intro and that is the significant impact of non-clinical factors that, that influence our overall health and well-being. Well uh, you know, social determinants of health, generally speaking, you and I have talked about this idea that we all have social comorbidities in the same way that we all have medical comorbidities. How are you and Signify bringing this to the forefront in, in improving care for the populations you serve? Yeah, thanks for the question, David, and, and thank you to Triple Tree for the opportunity to bring us together. Really honored to be in the panel with these uh, esteemed gents. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, I've got a long history in supporting health plans meet um, quality of care um, goals, and um, plans have had things like transportation benefits and supplemental benefits that address what we today put into that broad category of social determinants for, for a long time. But as you alluded to in the question, they've typically done so in an isolated manner. Um, when dad doesn't get to his primary care appointment, it, it might be that he needs a transpo benefit. It might also be, as you alluded to, um, that he's uncomfortable leaving mom at home um, because she's beginning to show signs of early dementia. 
So what's going to get dad to the PCP? Is it the ride or is it someone who can support um, mom while he's away for a couple of hours? Until you know that about the patient, you, you can't begin to address uh, the root causes of whatever is standing between them and good health. Um, sometimes that's standing between them and a visit. Sometimes that's a standing between them and healthy eating, however you define it. So uh, the, the first step is to understand with, with empathy and with the um, willingness to embrace the same level of complexity we would on a clinical standpoint, on a social standpoint as well. Um, the second step though, is to be able to organize and galvanize the intervention efforts around those patients. At Signify, what we do is we use software to connect community-based organizations who we have to note have been serving these populations sometimes for a century or more in their home communities. We put them in a novel legal structure. And then because many of these organizations have different laws governing the privacy of the data that they are entrusted with, you think of a domestic violence shelter, an addiction and treatment center, a food bank, a senior ride share, totally different privacy laws governing that data. We've got a privacy engine in our software that allows that data to move freely. What that means is that when you as a client of one of these CBOs enter any one CBO, every door is a front door and you not, your, your information can now move freely throughout the community. And we're now taking these communities that have our software as an operating system and tying them into our health plan and health system customers and connecting the clinical and the social spheres and allowing them to see holistically what's going on with patients, thereby creating a social longitudinal record that we pair with their clinical longitudinal record. So the, the basic strategy is the same, just as we at Signify try to connect providers across sites of care to give somebody a smooth patient journey, we're now taking the same thing and applying it to social service agencies and private organizations, and then connecting those two strata with technology. Right, and I think you guys just announced a, uh, a partnership with Independence Blue Cross. We're you know, bringing, bringing this to life a bit. Maybe just spend a minute just in, in that kind of real life example, how that's coming together. Sure, that's been a, one of the most invigorating and honestly inspiring things I've done in, in a number of years. Um, IBC is, for anyone who doesn't know, um, deeply, deeply embedded into the fabric of Philadelphia. They've got a relatively small service area for a blues plan. They are Philly and Philly is them. Um, and they were a partner of our in-home services um, already. And we went to them with this model that we, um, that I just described at a high level. And you know, I think what, what helped us come to a common understanding is, first of all, what we're providing is an operating system for their strategy. It's not our, it's not our social strategy. Um, we always begin with outcomes in mind. So IBC, what are you trying to solve? From that point, we then assembled a particular network. We were not trying to get every CBO, community-based organization in Philadelphia onto the platform. We were trying to get those that would make the most impact that were already seeing independence members. Independence's case managers know who these organizations are. The discharge planners in, in at Penn or Jefferson, the big health systems there, they know who these organizations are. So it's no mystery. Um, but you have to then go to the organizations um, with empathy for their mission and earn their trust. Um, as uh, the founder of, the, of this business division likes to say, it moves at the speed of trust. I think you might have nicked that from um, Stephen Covey, but that's okay. And um, you, we, we get them bought in on how working together is gonna help them further their mission and their, this is a public health term, collective impact. Um, and you know the, the managed care entity in this case has to walk um, with modesty here because these organizations, some of them are in Philly, 125 years old. They've been doing this a long time. They know these communities. So you can't say, hey, we're the HMO and we're here to help. You've gotta be a bit more respectful of their mission than that. And independence really understood that. So um, we are now uh, using data we collect in our in-home program to further enrich analysis we do of their population to identify the comorbidities, the social comorbidities that these members have, and then use those to trigger referrals into the CBO network. And because they're on the platform, Independence has transparency into what's happening throughout the community, and they can see all the other engagement points they have to their members. That's a really important point. 
these CBOs as a collection might be seeing and serving these members 30 and 40 and 50 times a year. That's a, an enormous opportunity for a managed care plan. Yep. You know, Mark, one of the benefits to being in the home is that you're no longer limited to you know, whatever information is contained in a traditional medical record. I'd be curious how dispatch leverages non-clinical data in your home visits and, and as a provider, how are you, you know, incorporating social determinants into a member's care plan? Yeah, you know, our, our value is really predicated on our ability to provide care that substitutes for the emergency room, for hospitalizations, for skilled nursing facility stays um, in a lower cost setting with the same uh, or better clinical efficacy and improved satisfaction. And one of the things that diminishes our medical cost savings is recidivism to a higher cost setting after treatment by dispatch. So we realized early on as we started the program and, and frankly before the word social determinants of health was fashionable, um, that reduction in recidivism was really tied to addressing many of these social issues that, that were so visible to us in the home. It's hard to ignore um, when you're going to write your care plan and you say, please see your doctor in two days, the patient can't walk across the room, there's no vehicle, and there's no one to drive them, right? So you, you have to act and behave differently, and frankly, that may be part of the reason that in-home care has more clinical efficacy. Um, but early on in our development, there weren't many options for our providers to assist with these issues. Uh, however, increasingly, um, there are more vendors and more mechanisms for reimbursement. Uh, in each of our markets, uh, our providers have access to a database that we've just sort of created organically over time of partners that we then parse by sort of payer uh, and ability to reimburse for each of our patients. And although not complete in every market and for every payer, we're increasingly able to help our patients with these issues. And, you know, in our more longitudinal models, like the hospital at home model, what we call that advanced care, uh, we actually receive a bundled payment. We become the payer, and um, it gives us great um, leeway to, to actually pay for all of these services and arrange them ourselves. Great. And I want to come back to that point on, on bundled payments here in a second, but as is, is you marry kind of that social data together with the clinical data, are, are you, or to what extent are you uh, leveraging data from your, your health plan and your health system partners? Is there, uh, what's the integration there look like? Yeah, it's, it's a bi-directional feed and, and it's not with every partner, uh, but in many instances we receive um, a collection of retrospective data. That actually helps us because many of our patients are, are semi-emergent uh, and we have to stratify whether you know, that's the appropriate patient for us. So having that retrospective data is incredibly valuable. Um, we also have a, a technology platform that enables this care delivery uh, but there's also a robust database on the back end. So as all those providers are inputting their records, um, they're also doing social determinant screen screens that is structured data um, that we are then feeding back to our, our plan partners, their uh, care management function, uh, or our primary care partners. So bi-directionally, we're, we're creating, I think, a more robust um, picture uh, of those members. Great. Jason, I, I always think of it here as sort of a you know technology first solution. Um, you know, maybe talk about the link between social determinants of health, your technology platform, and, and ultimately how you leverage that technology to uh, improve outcomes and influence behavior. Yeah, Dave, and, and thanks again to you and Triple Tree for the opportunity to speak today. It's uh, as the old adage is, it's not the genetic code; it's the zip code. And uh, that is all about social determinants of health. About two years ago, CMS changed our guidelines to allow for health plans to use the social determinants of health benefits into the medical side of the budget. And that has transformed how health plans look at how to invest into these areas of, uh, of overcoming these types of barriers of care. And it's really important to think of that in, the, in terms of, and uh, I think uh, both Mark and Nathan has touched on this, is uh, it's like the Maslow hierarchy of needs of healthcare: food, water, shelter, health literacy, access, transportation. Those are really critically important in order to overcome those barriers so that you can actually improve quality, improve cost of care, improve value-based reimbursement. And the way uh, it here takes a look at this 
is we take a very holistic view of the patient. So we're pulling in on a daily basis medical data, pharmacy data, um, eligibility data. We're pulling in key dis information. We're pulling in hospital discharge data. The health plan's benefit structure itself, the community resources that are available to that patient or that member that are available. And so when we actually are engaged with the consumer or our client clinician uh, or their provider network, they're enriched with a guided workflow for that specific measure from a CRM perspective, holistically, customer relationship management. And then that guides to what are the most important things for this member today? So if we're talking about a Medicare Advantage DSNP, dual SNP member, which is Medicare Medicaid dual or a Medicaid member, you might find different types of social determinants of health issues for that particular member than you might find with a commercial member who has uh, high risk, high cost taking 15 drugs. So all those things need to be captured. Uh, and Mark used the word structured, I use discrete. But what are those specific data points that need to be captured, not in a free text case management tool, which most health plans use today, and not in an Excel database or access database, actually in a CRM tool that discreetly captures what is the SDOH issues that are challenging this consumer to advance their quality of care. And then you're on this adherence journey in terms of how do we have this pathway. Most of the uh, issues that we have with these types of consumers are not one phone call, one and done. And most uh, organizations are really uh, transactional in the way they would react versus a longitudinal process of building that adherence journey. Yeah. You know, one of the potential question marks regarding social determinants generally has been around uh, attribution and quantifiable value. Um, we know it matters, but we can't put our finger exactly how much. Yeah, I, I imagine you're able to point to some some fairly specific ROI stats around quality and, and star ratings, but how do you, how do you talk to your clients about that? Well, I, yeah, the way we look at it is um, uh, we always consider uh, this, and this is uh, a, maybe a bit controversial, but our biggest competitor is our actually our client. And so uh, we need to constantly uh, prove value from our technology. And uh, when we use technology-enabled services, our clinical team of hundreds of people across the United States, we have to ensure that the client sees value in terms of what we can do. And so what we've done is we've transformed our internal tools and we've commercialized them to be available externally to our clients. And we have several examples of um, health plans across the country using these tools now. And so the value proposition is very straightforward, is in ensuring that uh, if it's a Medicare Advantage plan, we're looking at how much do we outrun the rest of the country in terms of the growing cut points. So that might be uh, the plan is trending at a two-star or a three-star. We need to get them to a four-star. Um, and so 52% of a star ratings for CMS, 52% uh, of the weighting is actually medication-related issues. And, and so those are the types of things that we focus on in terms of actual results. Um, each measure is different. So a Medicaid measure is different. Uh, the state of Washington will operate differently from a value proposition than uh, a qualified health plan on the exchange um, or a commercial plan that's reducing cost of care and has no government-based reimbursement. So each of these areas have different quantifiable values in terms of the value proposition. Yep. So I think we've all established that you know social determinants are an important component of a longitudinal number record, particularly in a, in a value-based care construct. As we, as we think about value-based care more broadly, um, another necessary prerequisite, at least in my mind, is the ability to provide the, the right level of care at the right time across care settings. Mark, I imagine Dispatch was founded with this very thesis in mind, providing the, you know, the appropriate you know, care in a, in a low-cost setting, being the home. Can you talk about how your model has become an enabler for your health plan and your health systems partners and, and, and their ability to more effectively participate in value-based arrangements? Absolutely. So, um, you know, we spend four trillion dollars on our healthcare system today and about a third of that spend uh, can be attributed to emergency room visits, hospitalizations, and post-acute stays. 
Uh, so we're really driving value by recreating a significant portion of that care delivery in this lower cost setting. And I think you'll, you'll hear this theme, uh, the home, uh, in a manner that, that um, produces improved outcomes and, uh, and improved satisfaction. So on average, our ER diversion model saves our partners between $1,000 and $1,500 per intervention. Uh, and the early results of our home hospitalization model suggest savings in the five dollars to $7,000 range. Um, so we really position ourselves as the, I guess, the part A savings solution for capitated partners. Uh, we don't um, manage lives longitudinally. Uh, we're really designed um, to align closely with those longitudinal care providers uh, and align in a way that's that's different than a typical facility-based acute care model does. Uh, we commit to care plan integration. Uh, we talked earlier sort of the transfer of data that describes the social situation, frankly, in a manner that is that is different than they, they typically see and added it to the information uh, that most value-based care providers currently possess. And how do you determine or, or where do you draw the line in terms of you know, what care should be provided in the home versus what is more appropriate for an institutional setting? Yeah, so I'm lucky in that, you know, I spent almost 25 years managing, I think it was 64 ERs, 12 hospitals programs, and six post-acute facilities. So um, the medical evidence was something that I started with. And, you know, it goes back to my days at iTriage where we knew that a large portion of the care in an emergency room could be uh, treated elsewhere. Um, and I think of an emergency room in thirds, where uh, a third of the care should probably be there. Somebody needs uh, you know, an advanced procedure, admission, an advanced image. A third of the care, frankly, is you know, an ambulatory sensitive condition that, that should be taken out by a lower acuity model like telemedicine. Uh, and then a third of it is really where dispatch lives, that sweet spot of, you know, the, pa the patient with a COPD exacerbation or a gastrostomy tube that fell out or urinary retention. These are all things that almost always go to the emergency room, but almost always go home. Um, and so there's an opportunity if we increase the, the scope uh, of care delivered in the home and do it safely. And we've been doing this since 2013 and hundreds of thousands of patients to date. Um, that that we could really lower the cost of care and take almost 60% of that emergency room and move it into the home. Similar sort of uh, thought process around what can safely be hospitalized. That literature is is mature. Uh, there are countries around the world that do this routinely. New Zealand. Um, I think the Minister of Health came out a couple of years ago and said we'll never build another hospital. And so th those hospitals will ultimately be used for you know, ICU admissions and surgeries. Um, so it can be done. Um, the economic incentives to, to admit people to the facility are great, right? The reimbursement is significant. So, um, you know, a model like ours is fairly disruptive um, because it is a lower cost model that is pulling um, care out of the walls of those hospitals. Yep. And as you shift that higher acuity care into the home, the, you know, the, the hospital at home model, from a technology perspective, how have you been able to, to replicate you know, the various systems that have been built over the years to support institutional care? Yeah, that's that's been the, the fun part. So part of my background also in, in business school was I, I became interested in queuing theory and logistics and really, frankly, to apply to my own emergency rooms. But uh, that background was very helpful as we thought about dispatch health. So all of a sudden you have to move assets around, um, not just in relationship to distance and traffic, but you have to move them around in relationship to disease acuity. So we started with the on-demand ER model and really honed our skills over the course of almost seven years. And then in the last year and a half, we methodically built um, our home hospitalization model where that logistics dance um, that we do involves not just our clinicians, but now uh, community providers. So that if the doctor orders twice a day nursing, physical therapy, DME, that all has to be orchestrated in a way that it arrives just like it would in the hospital. And so a lot of what we built in our technology is that sort of risk stratification decision support, but also a very sophisticated logistics tool uh, that does that. And then we use, you know, um, a 
lot of vendors in terms of uh, remote patient monitoring, PERS devices uh, to augment um, the service. Great. So Nathan, part of what we're solving for here in a, in a value-based environment is not only how we deliver care, but also how, we, how we're paying for it. Um, yeah. you know, Signify has been on the front lines of, of bundled payments and, and episodes of care for some time, particularly through your acquisition of Remedy Partners. Um, how do you, how do you see that opportunity from you know for bundled payments and leveraging your platform to to facilitate that kind of model? Yeah, this is a really um, I, I've come to um, love the episode as a model for managing risk because it does something I think that's um, really unique, which is um, it creates a if you will spontaneous vertically integrated system around the needs of a patient with a really sharply defined focus to drive outcomes and care planning. Um, many people think of episodes as planned procedural, procedurally driven events, a knee replacement. And of course, that, those are subject to bundles in Medicare's BPCI program where we're the largest convener, um, running about 50% of that program. And that program is largely a post-acute program, which again is how most folks think of, of episode-based payment. But as you get into the commercial um, world, um, you find that episodes um, are to be found in uh, treatment for addiction, in high-risk uh, maternity, your pregnancy and delivery um, um, events, and in management of chronic conditions. And it is a way to, in our view, ask providers to do what they do best, which is not managing risk at a population level, but at managing patients on a patient level. So instead of saying to that hospital system, we want you to turn into an insurance company overnight and start thinking like actuaries in order to manage your value-based program, we're saying we want you to be collaborative with your downstream entities, work towards a target together, but everybody focus on doing what they do best. And we are at Signify the, you know, the interstitial sort of layer. We are connecting all those dots. So we're never replacing the facility. We're not replacing dad's primary care physician, we are getting um, dad from that acute event, which does typically tip, kick off an episode, um, even if it's not procedurally driven, and then managing him home as quickly as possible. That's our mission, is to transform the way that healthcare is paid for and delivered so people can enjoy more healthy, happy days at home. It's really simple. And the way we have our business organized, not to show you all my baby pictures here, but the way we organize the business is in managing someone home and then keeping them at home um, you know, as healthy as they can be. And what we've needed to bring into the system that wasn't there, and, and Mark's um, doing this as well um, masterfully, is um, putting healthcare resources to places where they haven't traditionally been. Again, we're not trying to interfere what's going on inside the four walls of the clinic or the exam room or, or the OR. Um, but we are trying to put healthcare resources where health happens as opposed to where traditional treatment happens. And, and that we feel is a foundational point of view to value-based care. We really believe three things at Signify. We believe that consumers of healthcare want personalized services. Um, secondly, that the space beyond the office is um, generally unmanaged, and that's where health happens, to, to my earlier point, and that this shift towards value-based care is permanent. And if you were a naysayer on value-based care before, take a look at the money hose that the federal government has had to um, whip out to keep um, many of our community hospitals afloat during the pandemic as um, utilization plummeted. Um, that to me, you know, to, to paraphrase Warren Buffett, that was the tide going out and seeing, you know, everybody whose pants were down or wh whatever that <laughs> expression is. Um, that just showed how, um, how fragile this recession-proof industry of healthcare actually is. And it's fragile because it's dependent not on getting paid to keep people healthy, but getting paid to treat people while they're sick. We've been saying that for as long as I've worked in this industry. Boy, did it just become blatantly obvious this year. So it's a, um, it, it for us is about finding these novel risk models, we internally call it our risk chassis, that we can, in the episode, inset into any other kind of risk chassis um, and focus the resources around the needs of patients in their moment of greatest need 
um, using skills of population health, using skills of segmentation, using actuarial sciences, all of that to drive putting resources where they're needed most. But then from a product and consumer and clinical experience standpoint, building everything around the needs of the patient. Yeah. As we said in the intro, you know, your organization manages um, you know, one of the largest uh, networks of mobile clinicians in the industry. Is maybe talk about how that asset can drive, you know, improved performance around those episodes of care, having having those clinicians in the in the uh, in the community. Yeah. So, <clears throat> I mean, I'll start by saying that the, our episodes division has been um, at this for almost ten years. Um, there's a lot of experience in being the analytic and the financial chassis on which these bundles and episodes. Um, run, working with um, our 500 hospital partners, their 3,000 SNF and home health agency partners and other sort of entities in that value stream. But until um, the last year, um, the company hadn't put its own um, clinical, social, behavioral resources to bear to make those episodes perform better. We were always um, providing data, insight, and um, um, decision support for those partners on next site of care decisions and things like that. Um, so we've begun um, uh, transition to home programs with some of our partners in the episodes business that, that do exactly what you said. You know, it's partially about the mobile network of 9,000 doctors and nurse practitioners we have in 50 states. Um, it's also about the experience we have in um, member engagement and through our social determinants work in meeting the behavioral um, and social issues that are often the drivers of readmissions, um, of adverse health events of, of all kinds. You don't always need an MD in the living room. In fact, most of the time you don't. Um, what you need is a trained um, person with access to social and community resources often who knows when to make an intervention with a member and get them the support they need. And sometimes that comes from us, sometimes that comes from a partner, Sometimes it comes from a person like a, a PCP that the member's already familiar with. So, um, you know, going back to the theme of, of this talk, it takes a village. Um, the mobile network is, is one piece of the puzzle in terms of getting people repatriated to home quickly and safely. But the social and behavioral aspects just cannot be underestimated in terms of their impact on health outcomes once someone has been discharged safely from an acute setting. Jason, uh, one topic of debate as it relates to value-based care uh, has been the use of, of carbon pharmacy services to drive a, a more integrated approach and coordinate care you know, across pharmacy and medical benefits. How are health plans thinking about this right now and, and where does it here fit in that context? Yeah, really important question. Uh, not a stat that is um, used in the, I'd say, the top uh, issues within our healthcare issues uh, today um, is that half a trillion dollars every year is avoidable if we can improve medication adherence. That's 16% of the U.S. healthcare economy, half a trillion dollars, if patients took their medications. And today, 50% of Americans don't. They don't take them by evidence-based guidelines. That could be um, uh, adolescents, teenagers, adults, and geriatrics. They just simply don't take their medications. And that causes $500 billion a year. And that's, a, that's not my study. That is the Annals of Pharmacotherapy 2016 study. And so it's with the aging baby boomers, it's probably well north of half a trillion dollars at this point. And if you start there and you think about, well, how is, and, and I think Nathan mentioned this a moment ago, the government is behind this in a very big way. So the Medicare Advantage star ratings, as an example, is uh, putting half of their $7 billion annual pool into medication-related issues, because half of the waiting is medication-related issues. But if you, if you look into the private sector, into commercial self-insured employers and fully insured commercial players, then you look at things such as carbon pharmacy. And so the trend right now, and it's really important, is when the health plan has responsibility for the medical side of the benefits, well, what's the best way to reduce the cost? It's pharmacy. It's absolutely the pharmacy. And where is half of the pharmacy cost today? It's in specialty pharmacy. And where is that? That's actually in the medical data. So PBMs really aren't 
focusing on specialty pharmacy because it's not even a data stream they probably even receive. So if you think about where the costs are hidden, it's actually in the medical side, either A, get the patient adherent on the drug that they're not taking inherently or maybe, maybe never even took at all. Looking at ICD-10 codes and identifying that there are not pharmacy of, uh, associated or at least not inherently with this diagnosis is critically important. And so uh, I, you know, I grew up uh, in the last 30 years you know, going through waves of different uh, issues that uh, really took healthcare from a homogenous point of view. Everyone remembers disease management and the Medicare health support debacle when um, a dozen or so very large organizations across the country failed in the experiment to take disease management to Medicare fee-for-service, and it was an absolute failure in 2009. And so those issues were mainly due to that cost reduction could be 20 years from now. We got someone that stopped smoking 20 years from now. If they happen to be still working for you, which is unlikely, maybe you avoided lung cancer. So what I'm talking about is actually in-year savings. This patient's not taking their medication. Because of the disease that they have, they're headed for problems. And identifying that in real time and then acting upon it from a clinician perspective and reaching out to consumers and their doctors, pointing these things out, also identifying other issues in specialty as well for cost reduction is really important, and that will absolutely move the dial. And I would say today, Dave, we're not seeing that uh, as one of the most important aspects of the country. No. And I guess to answer your question, I'm sorry, uh, where does it here health fit in? So uh, we've been doing this for 15 years. We've been working with the commercial side of the business, uh, self-insured employers, commercial organizations, for over 15 years. And so what we've done uh, more recently in the last couple of years is we transitioned our tech so that the, um, the large employer uh, organizations or the large health plans who are uh, having their clients, our employers, are really, uh, you know, pounding the fist to the table. I need your help. I need to reduce the rising cost of premiums. What are you going to do for me? And I think that the carbon pharmacy aspect is a way that's occurring but the, the, these plans, again, they don't have the tools to identify the issues and the priority and which consumers need to be reached out to and when and which doctors need to be addressed as well, holistically at a panel level. And these are the types of things that we're seeing a very big trend in. We have a, a plan that's uh, one of the largest plans in the country. It's uh, half a dozen states, uh, well north of 10 million members, uh, who've, who's implemented this technology system and um, it, is, it is a mission-critical aspect for any plan that's looking to reduce the premiums, which should be everybody. Yep. Uh, I see my colleague Nate popped up. It looks like we might have a question from the audience here. We do indeed. Uh, we've got a few questions, you know, really all focused on a similar topic, and that is, do you think about, you know, we talked about social determinants of health. You know, one element not mentioned as acutely was the broader behavioral health impact, you know, the concept of isolation, loneliness, how those can lead to depression and, you know, what depression, you know, can do to the overall behavioral health of an individual and how that impacts their overall health. So uh, the question is, can you speak a little bit to what your organizations are doing broadly to address, you know, the root cause of those behavioral health issues and how you're weaving behavioral health into the way that you're delivering care in the community? I mean, I'll, I'll jump in with it if, if it's open. Uh, sure. Um, it's, it's a great question. Um, and, and, I'll, and I'll say, I think that we are really at the beginnings of our learnings on how to do this in a um, value-based and, and, and a scaled way. Behavioral health issues, it's, first of all, it's a, it's a broad category. Um, addressing the issue of senior isolation and loneliness is one of the, the most impactful things that, that we can do. Um, and it's not easy. I'm just thinking of my own family and the challenges we've had in staying connected to to everybody, particularly through the pandemic period. And again, this um, this last year, I think, has shown um, with, I would say, an element of tragedy, just how disconnected um, we've become and what a um, empathy recession we're in as a culture. And um, I'm, I'm a big believer that the universe restores balance. And I think as we're seeing the green shoots of response to the way COVID has scrambled society, we're seeing greater attention to the issues. 
Um, it, it begins with an empathetic view of the patient that comes from sitting knee to knee, if you can, wearing PPE, as we do now in the home, um, and engaging with them in a conversation that isn't a six-minute drive-by in a clinic, not to knock any PCP doing the best they can with the patient volumes they have. Um, but that is just not the right setting to get disclosures about um, behavioral challenges, mental health, substance abuse. Um, that's just not generally where it happens. So, you know, we spend an average of an hour with every patient we see in the home. Um, we'll do that. We'll be invited into the homes of well over a million patients this year and uh, see many hundreds of thousands uh, virtually through our telehealth work. Um, and those are extended encounters. And oftentimes the disclosures don't come until the one more thing doctor moment towards the end of the um, encounter, if you will. And um, so it takes some time. And with the senior population in particular, um, you know, there's so much focus in business in speed and scale and efficiency. But when you are, when your product is the encounter and you're talking about the senior population, you gotta go slow, you have to talk slow. You have to be, um, not because the seniors are slow, but because the, the depth and the richness of the information, the insight and the wisdom you're trying to get from them takes time to disclose and it takes time to build trust. And so it's foundational that you have encounters that are humanely designed around um, that particularity. And then from there that you've got the right um, intervention engines, if you will, to get that, um, get the members into care. One final point there, you know, we found in the early goings when we pulled back our house call programs um, in April, as, as you know, we were seeing the um, spread of COVID um, uncontrolled in so many communities, we pivoted very quickly and amped up our telehealth efforts. And we have seen our rates of video adoption in our telehealth business um, triple, um, if not increase four times over um, during the two and a half months that we started ramping that. And I don't know if that was grandkids teaching grandma how to use Zoom or what, but I think one of the most prompt, we, you know, telehealth has been um, big all over, you know, the news and is the darling of the investor community now for good reason. We believe there is no substitute for face-to-face -face encounter. Telehealth is one of those good tools in the toolkit, but the place maybe where it's, um, um, will in my view have the greatest, most powerful, long-lasting impact is in mental and behavioral health. And we're seeing for technology and, and other reasons, the barriers drop to seniors getting that care. And it's a um, one of the green shoots, I think, that are coming out of this pandemic era, which we have to note has not ended at all. Um, but it's an incredible way to get access to people and um, get them access to um, professionals that can help them. The, the other thing is, um, you know, the community work that we're doing, um, many of those organizations are highly uh, attentive to those issues. And we've just got to think outside the box in terms of the resources. We, I'm thinking of a, like a health plan or an at-risk health system now. They're the resources that we help these people get into. It's not just about us. There are people doing extraordinary work in communities all uh, around America right now on these issues. And we healthcare people need to tap into their access, their knowledge, their wisdom, their experience, and support them in their missions. You know, Mark, some of these concepts like self-isolation and loneliness you know, have certainly come into focus here in, in 2020. Some of that's involuntary because um, uh, a member or senior you know, wants to uh, or has to, but, but in other cases, it's voluntary where you know, I might not be comfortable inviting someone into the home. How have you had to change your care delivery methods, you know, whether it be telehealth or, or any other um, components in terms of how you, you go about your work? Yeah, we, we certainly struggled, like every provider group, to secure PPE. Uh, it was a bit embarrassing as a country, but we, we were creative. And, and once we did put that in place with even more strict uh, infection control protocols, we were really down for about a week. And our model is, is a very high-touch, high-intervention model, really, that we, we certainly can augment it with telemedicine, but you can't put a gastrostomy tube in with telemedicine. And so we were really back to doing what we were always doing within about a month. And, you know, we work across all populations, Medicare, commercial, and Medicaid. Uh, but we're really at our best when we're working with high medical needs and high social needs patients, really the exact population that should have uh, avoided uh, exposure to COVID. 
So uh, as a result, all of our models really have been leveraged very heavily by folks who, um, you know, who couldn't get their patients into the hospital. So our ER at home model, home hospitalization took off, recovery at home took off. And, you know, COVID didn't really fundamentally change our model, but it did bring a, a welcomed awareness and understanding of what we do. Um, we've experienced the deliver of, of just about everything you can think of to your doorstep during the pandemic. So why not high acuity medical care? Um, in, a, in addition, we, we deployed another model that we kind of created on the fly. Um, some of our partners asked for it that we called Clinic Without Walls. And we have a, a workforce that is everything from physicians to paramedics. And what it does is it sends one of our medics into the home, um, a single practitioner, and normally our models are, are two people in the home, uh, with a telepresentation device um, and many of the ancillary capabilities that we bring, like EKGs and labs. And then those medics would then telepresent back to our partnered providers. And this was not designed for you know, a simple video visit. This was a service designed for patients who would not typically do well with a, a video visit, like a memory impaired patient, for example, or patients who are more medically complex, where you really need those ancillary services, the complex congestive heart failure patient, where you need an EKG, some blood work, and, and an echo, frankly, to, to keep those patients safe and healthy at home without bringing them into the office and risking exposure. Jason, as we as we think about our most vulnerable in this type of pandemic, it's it's not only the elderly, but in, in many cases, those with underlying conditions. Um, you know, given the, the critical role that uh, medication adherence plays really in, in both of those at-risk populations, where where do you see your solutions having the greatest impact in this kind of environment? Yeah, I, um, I did a blog uh, back uh, in, I think it was April, in the healthcare blog, and, and uh, described how we believe one of the uh, areas of solution for this pandemic is to focus on medication adherence to protect these vulnerable people. And, um, and studies have come out in the last couple of weeks from CDC that shows that 94% of the people who have uh, passed away due to COVID actually passed away due to underlying conditions. And where are these people located? They're from the same disparate, uh, uh, disparity of care zip codes uh, that existed before COVID occurred, and they're gonna be in the same zip codes well after we get a vaccine. And so it really gets down to the brass tacks of how are we gonna get to these consumers who have the most needs? I had a conversation with a um, Medicaid medical director, which I won't say who it is, and you'll understand why, um, several months ago, and I said, how are you going to get a consumer that can't walk to their mailbox? So uh, age-blind disabled patients are about 25% of a Medicaid population. So how will the age-blind disabled person who doesn't have a caregiver anymore able to um, get their medications from the local Walgreens or the CVS, how is that person who also can't get to the mailbox, how are they going to get their medications? And uh, what kinds of programs do you have in place for that? The answer was, um, we have a rideshare program in the middle of the pandemic. We have a rideshare program so that we can get these people into a small car to go to the local pharmacy. So we need different kinds of solutions. So at Here Health has a pharmacy uh, for these, uh, I'd say the top two, three percent of these patients, for example, whether it be behavioral health issues or those who need or most need, we, where we private courier drugs every month for free to the consumer, and every single month, we're actually having a conversation with them and often their doctors to change the medications to fit for them. And then we private courier to the person's doorstep on a schedule, not to the mailbox, and hopefully it gets there when FedEx gets there, to their uh, door with purple gloves uh, to help that. But those are the types of things that we have. Our partnership with Amazon Pharmacy, uh, with uh, PillPack, also allows for the same type of thing as well, sorry, my lights, um, and when, depending upon the consumer, when we're engaged with them for this specific issue, what's the best way to engage? It might be a mail order because that works for them. So I personally have asthma and mail order is great for me, but pill pack might be great for someone who needs compliance packaging and forgets to take their meds and they take several meds throughout the course of the day. 
and we can roll them right into our platform uh, and automatically have that API into the pharmacy OS system for PillPack. But then we also have these patients like a CRX who are really, really sick or taking 6, 10, 15, 20 drugs a day, and their drugs keep changing every month. And those are the people that really are being impacted uh, mostly uh, with COVID. And, and as Winston Churchill said uh, many decades ago, never let a crisis go to waste. And this is a terrible, terrible pandemic, but this is something we should be focusing on right now. And uh, we believe, at least with Adhere Health, and I, I would share this with uh, both Nathan and Mark, is that we need to be part of the solution. And we believe that we're a medication adherence is especially about a part of the solution. That's great. Um, and a great uh, segue into um, our, our final uh, lightning round here is we're almost out of time. And so I want to give each you know an opportunity to spend you know 30 seconds and just you know give your view on you know looking out over the next 10 years, you know, what does community-based care look like um, over the course of that time? And really what are the most significant advancements you see unfolding uh, here in the next decade? Nathan, you want to go first? Sure, I'll, I'm gonna pick up on Jason's theme and, and quote Churchill again by saying, Americans will always do the right thing after they've exhausted every other option. And, um, you know, I think what, what this has um, done for me and my Signify colleagues, I think, is um, made clear just how tattered this social safety net is at a, at a time when we are realizing its importance to driving the health outcomes that we've all spent our uh, careers in, um, in pursuing. And so um, I think the connection between the, the clinical and the social and to, to the, um, the commenter's point, the behavioral, this, this converging of these strategies and realizing that if you're focused on an outcome, you, you can't disentangle them is, is really important. And so what that means practically is that the holders of the risk capital, um, the payers, the at-risk health systems, um, have to reach um, thoughtfully into that social sphere and support these public uh, agencies and private organizations that do this work um, and, and meet them on their own terms um, and, and connect them into um, the health system in careful and thoughtful ways. Um, there's a lot of movement now to get doctors to get engaged in social determinants of health. I'm not, sure, I'm not convinced that they're the right people to do it, just as I'm not convinced they're the right folks to counsel deeply on advanced directives, and that's not knocking doctors. They're trained differently. Um, and so uh, we have to acknowledge the domain expertise in that space and then use our access to capital technology and sophisticated tools to enhance what they do. Mark, any final thoughts? This probably won't be surprising, but we believe that care will start and in many cases end in the home. Uh, for many patient populations and, and many conditions, uh, home is the most efficacious site of care. Uh, technology uh, will increasingly be used to enable remote on-demand medical assessments. We'll have longitudinal medical management supported by remote analytics uh, informed with an understanding of social dynamics. You'll have high acuity in-home medical treatments and in-home end-of-life care. Uh, Ten years from now, our hospitals will be used really for what they were intended, um, surgeries and ICU care for our most sick patients. Jason, what are the most significant advancements from your perspective? Well, uh, if you remember back in the 90s, uh, the, first, the nation's first healthcare IT czar, Dr. David Brailer, in the Bush administration, uh, put, uh, put in place uh, health information exchanges. And, and I think that was a grand idea, uh, but we really haven't proven uh, anything with those RIOs or HIEs. So I, I believe that um, the technology has caught up to healthcare. And um, really, it's not about having a lot of data. A lot of, we have over 30 million consumers in our data platform today we touch every year. It's about actually taking that data and in real time using it to have actions. And so I think over the coming years, you'll see other companies, certainly Cure Health is very focused on this and being an aggregator of all this different disparate types of data, including all the uh, uh, EKGs and all the uh, Bluetooth-enabled devices as well but really using that and actually having actions so a clinician can make a response for that specific issue. And I think we'll see more of that, uh, maximize that engagement, improve customer experience, uh, like companies like Apple have done. Uh, uh, those are the types of things that I think we'll continue to see, and it really is uh, well-deserved. It's all about the data and the clinical workflow. Great. 
Well, we're now over our time. I want to, again, thank all of you for, for joining us here today. There's certainly more than enough to, to talk about and uh, appreciate you taking the time. This was fun. So um, with that, I will pass it back to Michael Carroll for final thoughts and wrap up. Thanks, Dave. That concludes today's Market Insights live session. Uh, thanks to all of our panelists for participating and thanks to everybody for listening in. For additional information about all of our Market Insights Live series, you can visit triple-tree.com forward slash Market Insights Live. We have posted all of the replays from prior sessions as well as information about the upcoming sessions. So again, a big thank you to everybody for participating and we will hear from you and see the group in two weeks. Have a good rest of the day. Thank you. This concludes today's episode of Market Insights Live, presented by TripleTree. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an advertisement for services offered by TripleTree LLC or TTCP Management Services LLC or any of their affiliates, nor is it a solicitation to invest in any fund sponsored by TT Capital Partners. Forward-looking statements, predictions, and opinions are subject to change. As a healthcare merchant bank, TripleTree and TT Capital Partners receive compensation from transactions and investments in the marketplace. As such, the firm's business activities can inform or shape the content shared in this podcast and may represent a conflict of interest. This podcast is copyrighted 2020, all rights reserved. Please join us next time to hear another important discussion about what's ahead in healthcare.